Jesus is in the process of growing and maturing the faith of the disciples. The disciples are still learning who Jesus is, still learning to trust and submit to Jesus. We've been in a passage in which Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? They said, some say thou art John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He then said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got an A. Jesus said, well, well done now, good. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But Peter really didn't understand with a great depth of maturity what it meant that Jesus was the Son of God. He professed it, but he needed to really grow in his understanding of what that meant. To help grow that understanding, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and we saw that last week. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the nine disciples were left where they were, and they were continuing to minister. It is at that point that we pick up our, our narrative. The thought today is that Jesus is going to grow the faith of the nine disciples. The theme is Jesus laments the lack of faith in those surrounding him. Key verse is Matthew 17, 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. So I asked the question, to whom is that said? O faithless and twisted generation. Or better, of whom is it said? Who is Jesus describing? The crowd the boy's father, or the disciples? How you answer that question is going to have a profound impact on how you understand who Jesus is. And that's exactly what's taking place. Jesus is revealing more and more to his disciples who he is. How does Jesus respond to our little faith? How we answer this question is very, very important. In order to answer that question correctly, we need to take into account all of the synoptic Gospels. As we have been working through the book of Matthew, I have been careful to try to contain myself to looking at what is in the book of of Matthew to demonstrate how that relates to what goes before and what follows. In my preparation, I always look at the Synoptic Gospels, all the accounts, to make sure that what I'm saying is is accurate, but I've been avoiding doing that as far as in the service. But this morning, it's really important that we look at all three of these passages, therefore the handout to make it easier so you aren't flipping all the way through uh, the scripture. It also gives you a visual representation of what's taking place, so you can see what is in one passage and not in another particular passage passage. So this account is given to us in both Matthew, Mark, and also in Luke. So we're going to be looking at all of those accounts. I will tell you which column to be looking at as we work through. But as we think about the Synoptic Gospels, two things are very, very helpful 
in our study. The first is to look at what do all of these counts have in common. For what they have in common teaches us what is the most important elements of the narrative. And then, secondly, what aspects are unique to the various Gospels. And that will reveal to us a particular perspective that we should have on what is taking place. So to help with that study, I have uh, given you this uh, harmony, and I appreciate uh, Pastor Brandt for uh, being able to put this uh, together for me. So, theme. Jesus laments over the lack of faith surrounding him. The occasion for faith. That is a boy's need. The setting for the occasion of faith. Jesus had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, accompanied by Peter, James, and John. When they arrive on the scene, they find the nine disciples that had remained engaged in an argument. I begin by looking at Mark's account, so the middle column, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So Jesus then asks what the argument is about, Mark 9, 15, and 16. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and gathered and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? The situation is then explained to Jesus. A father brought a son to Jesus that had a great need, Mark 9, 17, and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. The disciples could not cast out the demon. And then an argument ensued. An argument ensued. It is at this point that in each of the gospel narratives, we have Jesus' Remarks. Matthew 17, 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And uh, then verse, uh, uh, verse 17. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Verse 19 of Mark. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then verse 41 of Luke, Jesus answered, O faithless generation, etc. So there are two main obstacles. We just looked at the occasion for faith. Now the obstacles to faith. There were two obstacles to faith. The first obstacle to faith is the failure on the part of the disciples to cast out the demon. This failure is crucial to the narrative for it is recorded in each of the three gospel accounts. That's at the heart. 
of this. The inability of the disciples to cast out the demon. Everything is revolving around that. Matthew 17, 16, Mark 9, 18, Luke 9, 40. Luke 9, 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. The second obstacle to faith is the absence of Jesus. If Jesus would have been there, things would have been entirely different. But he was not. He was not there. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I say that because the man, the boy's father, had intended to bring his son to Jesus. The man believed that Jesus could heal his son. Look at Mark 9, 17, the middle column, verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Then verse 18. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. The so is because Jesus is not there. He brought his son to Jesus. But Jesus isn't there. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. So in Jesus' absence, he asks the disciples to cast out this demon. When Jesus was not there, his disciples tried to heal the son's man, the, the, the man's son, but failed. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. Jesus is in the process of preparing his disciples for his death and his resurrection. If you've been here the last few weeks, I've been emphasizing that we moved into a new stage in his earthly ministry where it says he began to unfold to them concerning what must come next, namely his death and resurrection. Jesus is preparing his disciples for death and resurrection. He's preparing them for the cost that is going to come to them. They are going to have to suffer and die as well. That was last week. This week, they have to deal with his absence. He is not going to be with them. So what is that going to mean for them when he is not with them? How are they going to respond when Jesus is no longer on the scene? In this particular instance, they fail. And they fail miserably. It is at this statement point that Jesus makes a statement. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, verse 17 of Matthew 17, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Mark 9.19, Luke 9.41, almost word for word, one word is missing in the one text. In each of the Gospels, the remarks of Jesus come at the same point in the narrative. So to understand what is taking place, we need to understand, first of all, it should be noted that Jesus is not speaking of any particular group of individuals, but rather of an entire generation. Notice verse 17. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. That is a key word. Generation. 
He's not speaking primarily, well, I'll take that back. He's not speaking only of the crowd or of the father or of the disciples. Jesus does not characterize the disciples as faithless. He characterizes the disciples as having little faith. A little faith in Matthew. It is a generation that is characterized as faithless and twisted. Faithless, that is not having faith. Twisted in the sense of perversion, of twisting what Jesus says and does, taking truth and warping it, putting the wrong spin on truth, if you will. However, the implications for what Jesus says is not for that generation only. Every generation is a faithless and twisted generation. It is not unique to that particular time. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, we're not going to take the time to turn there, but if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, twice God refers to Israel in this manner as a perverse and twisted generation. In the book of Philippians, after Jesus has died and risen again, Paul writes to the Philippians and he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Every generation, from Adam to Christ's return, is a crooked and perverse generation. We live, as every generation has lived, in a world that is filled with faithlessness and perversion and will be until the day he comes. That's why in the book of Ephesians, it refers to the importance of redeeming the time because the days are evil. We live in evil days. So has every other generation. And so, in the book of Galatians, it refers to the gospel that he may deliver us from this present evil age. Meaning, the age to come, eternal life, there is no evil. This age, before the resurrection, before the return of Jesus Christ, what characterizes this age is evil. With that as background, I want to look at each one of these three groups and specifically look at the omission or lack of faith. I I need an O, so omission. But I'm really talking about lack of faith, okay? A lack of faith on each of these parties' individuals. And they differ. First, the omission of faith on the part of the boy's father. As a result of the disciples' failure to cast out the demon, the father's faith is shaken. Let's pick up the narrative at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 21. 
And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Now these words. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. If you can do anything. Now notice how Jesus picks up on that. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can... If you can, what do you mean, if you can? Why are you questioning whether I can do this or not? Answer, because the disciples couldn't do it. This man came to bring his son to Jesus. Jesus was not there. So the disciples said, we'll cast the demon out. They couldn't. And when they couldn't cast the demon out, it then shook this man's faith in Jesus. For they're representing Jesus. So if you can, would you cast him out? So Jesus confronts him, verse 23. All things are possible for the one who believes. The Father's wonderful response, verse 24. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. The result... And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he buked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and dead spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. What did this father need to do? Notice this man's faith. He had faith in Jesus. He brought his son to Jesus to be healed. That faith was shaken. And so he acknowledges his faith. He says, Lord, I believe. And at the same time, he acknowledges his unbelief. Lord, help me with my unbelief. That is a very healthy response. Faith is not something that you just have or don't have. Some people don't have. Some people do. But faith is something that we have in degree, that we have in measure. We are growing in faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is helpful to acknowledge where our faith is is strong, and it's also helpful to acknowledge where our faith is weak. And what we need to do is exactly what this man did. Profess our faith, Lord, we believe. And at the same time, have no problem in saying, Lord, help me with my unbelief. Help me in my doubts. Help me in my uncertainty. Help me when life's circumstances have shaken my trust in you. Help me in my unbelief. We'll have more to say about that later. The omission of faith on the part of the disciples. Their lack of faith was evidenced by their inability to cast out the demon. Matthew 17, 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? 
Why couldn't we cast out this demon? There are two different answers that are given to this in the narrative, but they are complementary to each other. Remember, Jesus had given the 12 power to cast out demons. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Okay? Now let me read that again. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Keep that in mind. Twelve apostles given power to cast out demons and to heal every disease and every affliction. So why weren't they able to do this? We have to look carefully at Jesus' response. The answer is due to their, quote, little faith, unquote. Matthew 17, 20. He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So how are we to understand this phrase, that they could not because of their little faith. One might assume that in order to cast out this demon, then they must have had a lot of faith. Okay? It would have taken a lot of faith to cast out this demon if they couldn't cast him out because they had a little faith. Isn't that the logical Conclusion? Well, if you can't do it because you don't have, only have a little faith, then it must take a whole lot of faith. But Jesus negates that idea with verse 20. Notice there. Because of your little faith, for I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will remove, and nothing will be impossible to you. It doesn't take huge amounts of faith. The tiniest bit of faith can remove a mountain, okay? If God wants the mountain to be moved, okay? Faith can't do anything at once. I can remember very, very well. This is the very first verse I ever memorized in my life. I got a little faith promise book. It looked like a plastic little Bible. You open it up and had Bible verses in it, memorized it. I was about five years old. I memorized Matthew 17, 20. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. I remember I was five years old. I went to bed and prayed, looked out my windows, could see the blue mountains from my window, prayed that they would be gone in the morning. Got up, didn't even bother to look out the window, went and ran downstairs, grabbed my mother's hand, and asked her to go outside with me because I wanted to show her what I did. I want to show her that there's no mountains there anymore. Went outside, and guess what? They were still there. Hold on to that thought. It would not have taken great faith. It would not have taken great faith 
In fact, it wouldn't have taken any faith. Now, doesn't that just contradict what Jesus says? No, and let me tell you why. Who did Jesus give authority to to cast out these demons? The twelve. Judas isn't even born again. Judas is lost. Judas had the authority and ability to cast out demons. He, along with the rest, when it came time and Jesus said, one of you are going to deny me, they didn't all look at Judas and say, oh yeah, Judas, we always wondered why you couldn't cast out demons, why you couldn't do what everybody else did. No. He could do it because he gave him the power. So what does this mean? Faith in what sense? Look at the parallel passage in Mark 9, verse 28. Mark 9, 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Notice the answer, verse 29. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what Jesus meant when he said that they had little faith is that they did not pray. When confronted with a situation that they were unable to be successful, they failed to pray. Now, why is that important? This passage is in a context of their coming to understand that what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he didn't get it. He corrected Jesus when Jesus said he was going to go to the, uh, when he was going to have to suffer and die. He didn't get it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples didn't get it in the way that they should have gotten it. Notice in Luke chapter 9, verse 42. Luke 9, 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. Okay, moving on. They learn something very, very important here. And that is that Jesus can do what they can't do. Jesus can do what they can't do. Now you may think that that's overly simplistic, but think about this for a minute. Jesus can do what they can't do. Jesus gave them authority. You can cast out demons. Well, they couldn't do it. What did they need to do? They needed to pray. Jesus casts out this demon without doing what? Without praying. He didn't need to pray. The difference between himself and the disciples is they had a derived power or authority. 
He had an inherent power or authority. He, by himself, could command a demon to come out, and he had to come out because he was the Son of God. Because he was over all things. The only reason they could command a demon to come out is because Jesus gave them that authority. That and that alone. Without Jesus, it wouldn't have been possible. It was a derived authority. They thought that they could do this on their own because of their derived authority. But there's a world of difference between derived authority and inherent authority. His was an inherent power because he was the Son of God. His power was equal to that of the Father's. Theirs was not. It's important that we recognize the difference between inherent and derived authority. Even the difference of a means to an end. You know, um, I have great confidence in the authority of God's word. For it is God's word. It is God's word. But all too often, I fail to recognize that it is a derived authority, not an inherent authority. What I mean by that is God chooses to use his word just as God chose to use his disciples. He chooses to use his word. But the power in the word is the spirit of God. It's not magical. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, but it's not magical. It isn't just that you say certain words and people hear. It is God working through his word that brings people to faith. Ultimately, the power is in God. And if we're not careful, we can place our confidence in the word rather than in God and fail to pray. One of the ways that we really can honestly evaluate our own life as to how well we understand who Jesus is and who we are is what's our prayer life like? How often am I trying to do things in my own strength as opposed to calling upon God to help me? They had to learn an important lesson. Next, the omission on the part of the crowd. Notice that they were amazed by what Jesus had done. Luke 9.43, third column. Luke 9.43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. They're referring to Jesus. Jesus is revealing himself as the Son of God. The crowd looks and is amazed at God's majesty. Jesus. But in that amazement, they still do not come to faith. That is, they still still do not yield or submit to Jesus as the Son of God. For notice Luke 9, 43, and they were all astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling, at that very moment, when they're all amazed at God's majesty, at that very moment, 
Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your hearts. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Take this to heart. I'm going to die. What we've been seeing all through this this narrative, the passages before this, preparing them for his death. Don't mistake these people's awe and amazement for commitment. These people are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him in just a short period of time. Why? Because they are a faithless and perverse generation. What is being said by Jesus is on account of the situation. But what group it is primarily directed to is the crowd who sees the power of God displayed. In the scripture, unbelief is not ignorance. Unbelief is rebellion. Unbelief is refusal to yield to the truth, not in an inability to understand the truth. It's when the truth is right before your eyes and you reject it. So Jesus says that this is a faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I bear with you? How long shall I put up? How long must I evidence who I am? How long are you going to continue to deny? In the grand scheme of things, Jesus was not intentionally there to expose the lack of faith on the part of the crowd, on the part of the Father, and on the part of the disciples. All with varying degrees of responsibility. But Jesus, for the part of the crowd revealed his power in an undeniable way, a power that was unique to him, a power that could cast out that demon. They marveled, but they still did not believe. So, quickly, conclusion. What are we to learn about being in a faithless and perverse generation? First, lessons from the crowd. It means, number one, that you cannot argue a person into the kingdom of God. Number two, it means you cannot amaze a person into the kingdom of God. It means you cannot love a person in the kingdom of God. It means that unbelief is not an issue of the intellect but the heart. They refuse to believe. It means for people to come to faith, God must do a work. Here is a proper example when Peter declared, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. My Father who is in heaven reveals to every single person that Jesus is the Son of God if they profess that in truth. That's a work of God. That's a work of God. Because we are in a faithless 
and perverse generation. Because people's hearts are naturally against the things of God. Faith lessons from the boy's father. There are circumstances that shake the faith of other believers. Uh, And unfortunately, one of those circumstances is the failure on the part of other believers. New Christians are really taken aback by the failures of more notable or more famous or more mature Christians. You know, when mature Christians have moral failures in their lives, that can be devastating to a new convert. They really start questioning what God is able to do, what God does do, what is normative, what what can I expect of the Christian life. When they have people that they look up to and put their faith in, and they find them to be wanting. Never equate the most mature Christian with who Jesus is. People will fail us. Jesus will not. He's entirely different. We learn what we should do about our lack of faith. We should ask God to create faith within us. You know, as as you read the Bible, there are a lot of things. If you struggle with miracles, and you, you read this and Man, how could Jesus have walked on the water? If that's a problem for you, ask God to give you faith. Ask God to open your eyes. Ask God, who is the one who creates faith, to enlarge your faith. Help me to believe this. Help me to see its rationality. Lord, give me faith. And then lessons from the disciples. Lessons from the disciples. Our faith is maturing. Our faith is growing. Our faith is developing. Jesus is bringing circumstances into our life to cause our faith to grow. We are in a situation where Jesus is no longer bodily present with us. He's in our midst this morning, but he is not bodily present here. We cannot see him. We cannot touch him. We cannot sense him with any of our five senses, but he's here. But what we need to do is, in the midst of this crooked crooked and perverse generation, is seek to be a different people, not by, number one, relying upon our faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not our faith that does anything. Faith in and of itself is powerless. Faith doesn't do anything. I can have faith that that, I can drop that vase and it won't fall to the ground, but it's still going to fall. Faith doesn't do it. It isn't like, well, as long as you believe in something, as long as you believe that there's a God, as long as you believe in this. It's not faith. It's not positive thinking. It's not the little engine that could. It's faith in Jesus. It's trust in Jesus. Secondly, it's not faith in ourselves. 
It's not faith in ourselves, even in our derived faith. It's not that, okay, because I'm a child of God, and God is working through me, therefore I can do X and X and X. No. It's not even faith in my spiritual gifts. It's not faith in my ability. It's not faith in my talent. It's not faith in my work. It's not faith in my effort. It's not faith in me. It's faith in him through me. And there's a little difference in that. All of our power is a derived power. He alone has inherent power. He alone has authority. I constantly have to be relying upon him. And one way we can measure that is, what does our prayer life look like? What does our prayer life look like? You see, it is so easy, putting it on me, to prepare a message, study, work hard, believe that God is going to work through his word, and preach a message and not pray. That the Spirit of God would take that word and implant it in the heart and life of an individual. It's the prayer that is the ultimate inherent power. And it's not because you pray, it's because you are relying upon the source of that power, the source of that blessing, the source of that thing. So as you look at day camp this week, as you minister at day camp, ask God to minister through you. And many times, in spite of you, and in spite of me, may God demonstrate who he is. May we recognize our inability to argue someone in the kingdom. May we pray. May God be pleased this week to save children. And if he does, it will be what he does. Because he alone can reveal. But he's going to reveal through us as we share the gospel, as we do these things. But ultimately, it is him. And so he deserves all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. But we live in the midst of a faithless and crooked generation, which means we are surrounded by negative examples. We are surrounded by people that have a totally different mindset. It means that we struggle, even in our Christian faith, some of us stronger in that faith than others. The solution, cry out unto God. I believe, help my unbelief, like the boy's father. And for the disciples, for you, the only way this is going to come out is by prayer. By prayer. Interesting thing. Had Jesus been standing there and they couldn't cast him out, they would have immediately turned to Jesus and Jesus would have done it. But Jesus wasn't there. And he wasn't there. So they couldn't just turn to him. Physically, they had to start to learn to pray and God to intervene. May God teach us to pray. Let us close in prayer. Our Father, help us. Help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to be a people of faith, but not faith in faith, not faith in ourselves, faith in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Help us to understand more and more of what that means, even in our own life, that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, Lord, open our hearts and minds to the understanding of that great truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.